0: Well, good morning to all of you. It's a, a wonderful pleasure to be able to be here. Seems like every time I do have the opportunity to be here, you're meeting some new place. So this is the, the new new place. I thought I'd take a few minutes before I get into the sermon to give you some updates on how things are going with the work of God in Canada. It has certainly blossomed a great deal since the last time I had the opportunity to speak on a Sabbath down here. Uh, We moved into a a new facility in January of this year, uh, 7,750 square feet. It's about seven times the size of our office facility. When I first moved to Canada about 10 years ago, it's actually 10 years ago to this month. And uh, this has given us space for nine office members to have office space and several other locations, uh, offices, so that if we expand a little bit, we have a little bit of room for expansion, although we're already beginning to question if we found a place that was large enough. Part of the facility is in warehouse space, and so we're able to have all of our our mailing operations there. Uh, We've started mailing our literature from the office there in Canada a couple years ago, and we do believe that that's had a profound impact on the work in Canada because we're able to drop the length of time that it takes for a piece of literature from forty days which was what we found out in our study down to just a matter of a few days when Canada Post is not on strike and uh, so now we print almost all of our booklets a couple of them we don't print but uh, most of them we do print there and we have plenty of room for that and for volunteers to be able to come in once a week and sit down and mail out the literature which is usually well over a thousand pieces thousand to fifteen hundred pieces uh, we also mail out the semiannual letter, bring in about 25, 30 volunteers, and we can get the 31,000 uh, this year, we hope, uh, within about five or six hours uh, mailed out, all the semiannual letters. Across Canada, we have 13 ministers serving, uh, very hardworking, uh, dedicated individuals. Uh, most of them are either retired or are still working. Uh, a few of them are hired by the work, but most of them are not. And so they're sacrificing a great deal, and one of the things we have a hard time getting them to do is mail in their expenses. Uh, They oftentimes absorb a lot of the expenses that they do have. So it does tell us in many ways that they are very dedicated, uh, very hardworking, and we appreciate them very much. One exciting development that has taken place since the last time I spoke, at least I believe it was since the last time I was down here and spoke, Was that we have now gone on television in Hong Kong and Guangdong province in China. Last night would have been our 24th program. And we've had uh, several of them have been reruns, but uh, we have 21 programs that we have produced, actually 23. And we have three more to finish out for the year. But we have produced uh, 23 actual programs. Uh, We had up to this point, eighteen hundred and twelve responses for an average of about seventy nine responses each week Now, actually the number is higher than that but we count a response uh, since we're not able to advertise during the program Uh, we're not even able to say that have writing material available because we'll be offering something at the end of the program we're not allowed to say that we can't have tomorrowsworld.org behind us and at the end of the program, I can make a, a short appeal for uh, a booklet. But then Kevin Lee comes on, and he uh, gives the, the, the basic one. But I found out that I can't even say that all of our literature on our website is free. Uh, they don't like that word free for whatever reason. Now, the good news is that they have not complained about the content of the program, just how we advertise. So as long as they keep worrying about the advertising and not the content, then that's, that's a good thing. But we count responses, since right now we we do not have hard copy literature, but we do plan on uh, arranging for that uh, in the next uh, couple of months or so. We hope to be able to uh, give out hard copy literature. Uh, we are only able to, at this point, advertise a website, a special website for Hong Kong. And we only count the first 24 hours the unique responses. So we're averaging about 79 unique responses Each week, but the actual number responses to the uh, to the website is two to three times that that particular number, and we've also found at least early on. I haven't talked with Mr. Bomer lately, but we were getting a little bit of a spike on our website here uh, during the time that it is aired. It is uh, 8:55 p.m. our time here on Friday night, but it's Sabbath morning over there. Now, we're moving toward the completion of a new television studio. It is in the final stages. Uh, this is something that we didn't originally plan, but I'll explain that in a moment. But we'll be able to produce our own uh, programs for Hong Kong, a French-language program. And depending on how things go in Canada, we may uh, go for Canadian content and I don't want to get into the details of that, but uh, Vision Television is our flagship station. And it has been bought out, and the new owner is moving in a somewhat different direction and will continue to do so. And actually, it's not all bad, the direction right now, but uh, we do expect a number of changes. And if he does demand that all religious program has to have what they call Canadian content, then we would uh, be able to introduce the program and close the program out, uh, which Mr. Meredith and Mr. Ames have uh, given us permission to do that. But uh, we don't want to do that yet because why why change something that is working for us? And since the recession, we've had the opportunity to go on several news stations that were not open earlier. So we're able to uh, be able to reach a good uh share of the audience. At least we feel fairly good with what we have, the mix of everything right now. And I I just am very hesitant to change a winning program that that we have there because we're getting excellent results as it is, and we could uh, mess things up if we're not careful. So uh, that's where we are on that. Now, many do not realize that there are 8 million francophones in Canada. Uh, When I first moved to Canada, I didn't realize, I I always knew that Quebec was a a French province, but somehow it never sunk into my mind that that's all that a lot of those people speak, you know. Uh, A lot of the people in Quebec, that's the only language that they speak. And now there are many English-speaking people, and you can negotiate your way around quite well, but it's like a foreign country. In fact, it's called a a nation within a nation, uh, officially, and so with 8 million francophones, most of those in Quebec, uh, quite a few, though, in New Brunswick and some in northern Ontario, uh, we'd like to reach those people. They're warm and wonderful people, and we would like to be able to reach them, and we'd have to do so in the French language. And Mr. Yvonne Brochu uh, now has 14 programs that he has written the scripts for, but uh, with the new studio, we'll be able to then produce those. So we're very excited about what God is doing uh, through through us in the Canadian work. It's uh, very exciting to see the changes that have taken place over the last couple of years or so. And and now I'd like to mention a few things about this Hong Kong project that, uh, a little bit of background on it because some have misunderstood some things about it. You know, we had discussed in our Council of Elders about how could we get the gospel into China and India, as an example, uh, the two largest nations on the face of the earth in terms of population, but we never were able to come up with anything really concrete. And so, it was two years, less than two years ago. It was February, the end of February in 2010. Mr. Rod King and I and and the piles were in Nashville, Tennessee, for the National Religious Broadcasters Association meetings. And this was a a, kind of a trade thing like what Mr. Uh, Meredith was talking about, Jim Meredith here, that he had gone to for uh, planners, for conventions, but this has to do with uh, television. Mr. Ames was able to go there this last year and uh, hopefully uh, again this coming year. But Mr. Uh, Rod King and I were there, and we were the first ones, as far as I know, uh, of the ministry who had been there since uh, Global and Living Days. And one of the things that we do is meet with various agents. And we met with a fellow by the name of Darren Delane and his uh, partner, Jared Wilkins. Now, Jared Wilkins uh, lives here in, I think, Spartanburg, over around Spartanburg. And Darren Delane lives about 15, 20 minutes from me in Canada. But they're partners. And somebody here, Mr. Pyle, or somebody came in contact with with uh, Jared in uh, South Carolina here and that put us in touch with this fellow in Canada and uh, Darren Delane is an interesting fellow he's uh, been able to get us on stations that we would never have been on i i guess with anybody else he's he he knows a lot of people in the global network up there and uh, he's been able to get us on some things and as Mr. King and i were sitting there uh, talking with him he mentioned Hong Kong would be be interested in going into Hong Kong Well, we never thought that television for televangelist or religious programming was available there. And I think I asked him what it cost, and he told me, and the figure was such that I thought, wow, that's not that much. We could afford that. Because in 2010, God was blessing us with a 23% increase in income, which was quite substantial. And as a result of that, uh, I thought, well, that's interesting. But my immediate thought, and I think probably Mr. King as well, although we didn't really talk immediately about it, was that that would be nice, but we have no infrastructure over there. We don't have any members on the ground. Uh, How would we serve an area like that? Well, the next day, Mr. King made a a comment that really uh, made me think about it. He said, you know, when Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, He went back to Ethiopia, and there was no structure there. In fact, we never read of the Ethiopian eunuch after that. We assume he was coming up to Jerusalem for one of the holy days or uh, to serve God in some way. And he may have um, probably, unless he fell away, he no doubt would have come up for the, the festivals. But as far as going back to Ethiopia, at that point in time... We All we know of, he was perhaps the only member in that whole country at that time. And they didn't have telephones, they didn't have the Internet, and they didn't have all the things that we have here, and he would have been all by himself. And so we began to think, well, you know, if we wait till we have an infrastructure over there, the millennium will be half over. And how are we going to get an infrastructure over there unless we do something? So in uh, two or three meetings that we had with uh, Mr. Meredith, Mr. Ames, and Dr. Winnell, uh, we uh, discussed certain things, and uh, I found out that we could not have advertising as our normal program, so we'd have to make a change in the program, and Dr. Meredith then asked if I would be a presenter for that program. Uh, so that's kind of how all of that, that got started and how it began. Now, in many ways, uh, that seems like an odd uh, choice in a sense that uh, I'm terrible with languages, and we try to bring out some Chinese names and locations every once in a while. Uh, My accent is is bad enough as it is on languages that I'm kind of familiar with, but uh, nevertheless, uh, it's it's the way things are. And so uh, we've been able to go on there. They said we've been on 24 stations, but there were a lot of things that kind of came together here that helped us to realize a comment that Mr. D. Barr Parting made at our last ministerial conference here in Charlotte, uh, uptown someplace, uh, wherever it was there. As he said, and he said it very strongly, and it kind of, I think, took us back at first. He says, you cannot do the work. You cannot do the work of God. He said, God will do it through you. And that really has hit home with this whole thing because We were wondering about going into China, but we didn't come up with the idea. The idea came to us. And even when it came to us, we nearly stumbled over it and picked ourselves up and walked on without even realizing that the door was being opened. And there were a lot of things that had to take place. For example, we needed a video editor. And so we sent out a notice across Canada for a video editor. And frankly, nobody looked like they were a video editor. But we did choose a lady by the name of Carol Dranoff because she was certainly more enthusiastic than anybody else, and she did have a little bit of editing background and a lot of other things. But, you know, we had no idea that this woman was able to do things that uh, I, I can't think of anybody else that would have able to, been able to bring it about, even the uh, overseeing some of the 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 building of the studio, aligning people up for it, getting the right resources for it. Uh, She turned out to be just exactly the right person. She has a music background. Uh, She was actually a rock singer at one time. Uh, But uh, she also sings uh, very, uh, I mean, she can sing things from the Sia and everything else. She's got an incredible voice. But she understands uh, what needs to be done and has an understanding for quality. And, as I say, we could not have picked a better person. Now, it just so happened that I was in Ottawa that particular weekend when we announced it, and I would known her from camp. She'd worked at our summer camp a couple years. And it just so happened that uh, announcing it there, she was visiting in Ottawa. I don't get up there very often, and she was visiting there. And so when I uh, announced it, then she kind of got excited about it, and she and her husband were talking about moving out of Quebec anyway. And as it turned out, uh, had that circumstance not been exactly right, she probably wouldn't have applied for the job. Now, there were other things. Mr. Stuart Wahabich was working for the Confucius Institute of Canada, or of Edmonton, uh, has a lot of contacts in uh, China. Uh, A lot of people have some wrong concepts about what the Confucius Institute is. And some people have actually thought that we were going into China through the Confucius Institute, which is, is total rubbish, that that, uh, uh, that would be a conflict of interest, and it just simply is not going to happen. But what Mr. wahabich has done is he's brought certain knowledge. And I I know that I've told some of the people, but maybe you have not heard this, but he said that in a business meeting, for example, there will always be a question toward the end of the meal, and there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. And the, the question is, do you want noodles or rice? And the right answer is you want noodles, because rice means you want a short-term relationship. Noodles means you want a long-term relationship. And little things like that, because of his experience over there is able has helped us in being able to uh, work with the folks that are over there. Uh, it has nothing to do with the Institute itself other than his just his experience of the culture of that area. And he's been a very valuable resource in terms of our scripts and that sort of thing. So uh, that's that's kind of where that has uh, come from and where it's going. Uh, another initiative that we've uh, put great emphasis on the last several years are the Tomorrow's World special presentations. I don't know the exact figure, but it's close to 50 this year. By the time we get through, we have two more coming up that Mr. Wohavitch will be doing in uh, uh, out west. But we've put together about 50 of them this year. I think it's 47, 48. And as a direct result, this year we started three, con- three new congregations and possibly a fourth one. Next week, Mr. Wachowicz will be uh, meeting with uh, people in a new area that we had targeted and we think that we'll start a new congregation there, although uh, people are very enthusiastic, but they don't always show up, so we'll have to wait and see. Uh, we've started three other congregations, but not necessarily due to the TWSPs this year. And Again, in these presentations, Mr. Parian's words come through again because only God can convert a carnal mind. Uh, When he says that God will do it through us, you realize that no matter what you say, how strongly you say it, how enthusiastically you say it, how logically you say something, unless God is opening up a mind, it just goes right over the head. Now, we face a number of challenges in doing the work today, not only in Canada, but elsewhere around this world. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here, how things go right over people's heads. We got a letter, and again, pardon the English on this, but it says, Hello, I just want to know a few things about some things. Can the Sabbatarian Churches of God or Armstrongism, so someone who knows a little bit about our history, And Protestantism, Adventist, Baptist, Society of Friends, Mennonite, Methodist, and Methodism, be similar because they seem to look alike. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think they look at all alike. Uh, But this is what we often find. Someone will come up and they'll say, uh, you know, I I really love your program. And uh, for Mr. Merritt's sake... Uh, I, I hear this, you'd be surprised how many times I hear this somebody said, I, I really like that old guy, he's, he's got lots of fire you know." <laughs> they, they don't remember his name, but they remember the old fella <laughs> and uh, I said, oh Mr. Mayor, oh yeah, that, that's the one but uh, I, I'm surprised how many times I hear people say something just about like that but then they'll say something like and boy, isn't that Jack Van Impey wonderful and maybe mention another person or two and I'm thinking, if what we are saying is true, what that fellow over there is saying can't be true. And what if he is saying is true, if what that he's saying is true, what we preach cannot be true. Because we're worlds apart. We're saying different things. And yet I find that so many people don't seem to be able to discern the difference between us and them. And that's not our fault that we're not teaching the difference... It has to do with their spiritual insight. And unless God is opening their minds, they're just not going to get it. To borrow from my last sermon that I gave here, some people are unable to connect the dots. Or as Jesus quoted Isaiah in Matthew the 13th chapter, verse 14, says, And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. This is Matthew 13, verses 14 and 15. You can look it up later if you need to. But it says in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes. They have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Matthew 13, 14 and 15. How true it is. This is what we are seeing in our world today. It's a different world than it was 30 and 40 years ago. I, I, just being in a ministry, if you were in the ministry back, you know, 40 years ago, 35 years ago, the, the people that we visit are different. Now, it doesn't mean that people are, are bad as such today. They, they've just grown up in a very different world, an uncommitted world, a suspicious world. I'm surprised how many times when you meet somebody today, they only give their first name. It used to be that they would give their full name. But I find that many people, especially at these TWSPs, you know, I'll say, Hi, I'm Gerald Weston, and they say, I'm Frank, or I'm Jim, or I'm Mary. They don't give their last names. It's a, it's a different world. They're much more on guard in many ways. Now, Jesus gave us a parable that explains part of the problem that we face not only with the new people, but also with our brethren. He spoke a parable that explains what we face today. And in the time that I have left, I want to discuss this parable, what it means, how it affects our work, and how it affects each of us individually. It is the greatly misunderstood parable of the new wine and the old wineskins. So let's turn over to Luke, the fifth chapter. And let's notice that. Luke 5. And I'll just read verse 36 for now. We'll come back to it a little bit later. But In Luke the fifth chapter in verse 36 it says, Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise a new makes a tear. Because the new hasn't shrunk yet and it shrinks and it tears the the, the garment there. And also uh, the piece that was taken let's see uh, was taken out of the new does not match the old. Verse thirty seven and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. Now he says new wine must be put into new wineskins and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? What is his point? Well, again, we'll come back and get a little bit more context later, but let's go over to Exodus, the 32nd chapter. Because we'll see an example of putting new wine into old wineskins here in Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1. Says, now when the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said, come, make us gods that we may go, that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron told them to break off their golden earrings, which were in their ears, the ears of their wives, their sons, their daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded uh, calf. Now, you have to realize that a certain amount of time would have been taken here because they had to gather these things. They had to then melt it down, probably in some sort of a mold, and first you know, first mold. And then they had to engrave it and carve it. And this this must have taken a number of days, maybe a, a week or two. So how long had Moses been on the mountain at this point? We don't know exactly, but he obviously had been up for a period of time. But this took a little bit of time, too, so it wasn't a full 40 days that this took to happen. And so it says, then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, notice that they portrayed this idol as the God that had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now, in idolatry, most people don't believe that the actual object itself is the god, but that it is what it represents. If you talk to, uh, at least in my experience in talking to Catholics, they say, "Well, we're not worshiping the that that icon, uh, but it helps us to to think of what it represents there." And so they were looking at this golden calf as a representation of the God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And so Aaron built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Eternal. Then they rose early on the next day, verse 6, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. So they did some of the same things that they would have done otherwise to the true God. They had peace offerings. They had burnt offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Eternal said to Moses, Uh, Go, get you down for this people, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. And they've turned they turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, we could, there's no way of justifying this, uh, obviously, but... They were looking at this this idol. Uh, this was something that apparently they were familiar with in the land of Egypt. For example, Adam Clark's commentary points out that uh, the worship of Apis in Egypt was that of a calf or a bull. And so they were taking a familiar past religious object and they were taking the God that had brought them out of Egypt, and they were putting in the context of this past idol. And in many ways, this example describes what we see today. One thing that people have a great difficulty in doing is repenting of their past religion. They may have read the Bible. Many of them have, if they've come to us. They are people who are involved with religion. They watch religious programs. In Canada, especially, we find that uh, many of the people sit around with vision television or grace television as their default station. In other words, that's the station they go to. And I've met people that have it on from morning until night, just all day long. And they just watch one religious preacher after another. They probably have prayed to God in their past religious orientation. So when they do finally connect the dots to the point where they want to come over and say, well, I, I want to come to church here, nevertheless, they're taking this new understanding and they're putting it in the context of the God that they have been praying to all this time, who is a vague and nebulous God, a Trinitarian God, and so forth. And as several of us were discussing last night, They were praying to the God of the Bible as they understood the God of the Bible. Just as the children of Israel were looking to this idol as the one who brought them out of Egypt, they hadn't forgotten that God had brought them out of Egypt, but they were trying to put the true God into the image of this old idea. And so people take the worship of the true God in the context of their old religion. Now God may answer the prayers of some people because He understands their uh, their sincerity, and and we don't know all the reasons that God does things. But as we were talking about, uh, we've always taught that people who tithe, for example, even if they may not tithe to the right place, but they are trying to obey God as they understand, because God may not have opened their minds fully, but they're tithing that God will bless them for doing so. And sometimes even in the worship the people have of the wrong God. They just don't fully comprehend it yet. But God can still be merciful to people. And so it's very easy to take the God that they wor- worship before, the old wineskins, and try to put the new concept of God into that. As I read earlier from the letter, uh, from the listener, they don't always seem to, to see the difference. They, they, they confuse the two. And even if they see a difference, they likely don't see any problem with their own relationship with God. Some see no difference between the God that we worship and the God that they have been praying to for years. Now, brethren, if we are unable to see the difference between the God of this world, the Trinitarian God that they have, the whole concept of, of God... And who God truly is as our Father who is helping us be born into that very family. As opposed to a God that is a closed head. A Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is closed that nobody can be born into. And He is there and we're just some sort of angelic creatures we're going to be. If they can't see the difference, if we can't see the difference, then we're missing something. That the concept of God that we once had should not be the same concept of God that we have today. Go back to Luke, the fifth chapter, again. Luke 5. It's very understandable why people have this problem. It doesn't mean that it should continue, but it's understandable why people just kind of drift from one into the other and nothing changes in their concept of God. But here in Luke 5, verse 30, it says... Their scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, you see, their idea was that if you were worshiping God, if you were a servant of God, if you were a prophet of God, if you were a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you shouldn't be eating with tax collectors and sinners because they're over there and we're over here. And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, see, that was a very different concept than what the Jews had at that time. Verse 33, Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus explained to them, can, the, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? In other words, what is the purpose for fasting? And we have a fast coming up, and I think that that's wonderful that that, that fast has been called. There's so many sick people in the church today, and we need to fast individually, not just when the church calls for a fast for the Day of Atonement, but we need to fast often. And, and the reason that we fast is, is not because... Uh, in a pharisaical way but we fast because we draw close to god we humble ourselves when you read the examples of fasting in the bible you find that the individuals daniel or others would would uh, draw close to god they would confess their sins and the sins of their people of their nation and do a little review as it were and that's what we need to be doing. And Christ is simply saying, look, the bridegroom is with them. They don't need to fast because I'm right here. But he says the days will come, verse 35, when the bridegroom will be taken away uh, from them. Then they will fast in those days. And so we are to fast because we are now in the, those days. Uh, the bridegroom has been taken away. And so we need to draw close to him in a different way than just walking up and asking him a question. We need to be drawing close in prayer and study and fasting and meditating and, and so forth. Then he spoke this parable about the... The the, uh, piece of cloth from a new piece of cloth into an old garment and then he gives the other one in verse 37 no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. So he gives that example there. In other words people the Pharisees were taking their old concept of religion of worship of God and Christ was bringing something new And they were trying to take what Christ was giving them and putting it into the old context. And what Jesus is saying is, it won't work. It is incompatible. We have to understand God in a totally new context from that which we once were a part of. For example, let's take a look at some examples. Uh, We've touched on this already, concept of God. Well, we might have had a a concept of God as creator and the God of the Bible in our past. That was our old wineskins and may have been very sincere in that in trying to obey God as we understood what he wants of us. Uh, We didn't have a full comprehension of who and what God is. We did not understand that it was not a trinity. It was not just some sort of a blob that could not be understood. When we speak of God as our Father, we understand that we are His begotten children who are going to be born into His very family. And that's a very different God. Not a harsh and a cruel God. Or, or not just a God of, of, of love in the context of this world sees it as, well, God just loves everybody and you can do whatever you want to, and, and God would never be judgmental. And why would God, you know, be angry at somebody because he's a man and he loves another man? You know, enough to marry him. Uh, people have all these wrong concepts. And brethren, if we've not grown an understanding of God since conversion... We need to consider: Are we taking a new understanding and trying to squeeze it into the old, or simply not understanding the new concept? For many, the concept of going to heaven became heaven on earth. I can still remember that—that's how I explained it. We heard about the kingdom of God, and I, you know, the minister. I, well, you mean heaven's on this earth? It's not up there; it's here. Now, what's what's wrong with that concept? Well, look, the concept is going to heaven carries with it, what I say, it has legs. It carries with it certain baggage. It means going off to a place of eternal retirement, sitting on a cloud eating Philadelphia cream cheese, you know. That's the concept of going to heaven, getting your wings, going before the pearly gates and talking to St. Peter, And all of that has no relationship whatsoever to do with the kingdom of God on this earth as we learned in the feasts. For example, the one we just came home from, the Feast of Tabernacles. And we learn about being kings and priests, and we see that Christ is going to be king of all the earth. And what, about four different places in Jeremiah and Ezekiel at least four or five places, it talks about David being resurrected and being king over all of Israel. And then in Matthew and in Luke, we find that the twelve apostles are going to be kings over each of the twelve tribes, underneath David. And then we find the parable of the Minas, that we're going to be kings over cities, rulers over cities. And by the way, I gave a sermon at the feast this year, titled, uh, Will There Be a City for Me?, <laughs> Will there be any left? Because you start you'd start doing the math and they say, well, wait a minute, how many cities are there? How many people are converted? I, I read something in Dr. Kuhn's book on uh China's Leaders, How China's Leaders Think, and it mentions and I, I checked it on the web and you believe anything you find on the web, you know it's right, right? Anyway, <laughs> there are three hundred and sixty thousand villages in China. So I looked up India, and it's about the same. I think the stats are even a little bit newer for India. Actually, about a little over 360,000 villages in India. And that's about 35% of the world's population. You know, I think there's going to be a, a city for all of us. But our concept of of uh, the millennium, where the kingdom of God rules on this earth, and then for all of eternity, perhaps expanding out to the universe, and we don't know too much about all of that, where that's going to go, our concept of our reward is so radically different from heaven. And so what I originally thought when I came to the church that, oh, well, we just changed locations. No, we haven't changed locations. We've changed the whole concept. We cannot take the, the new term, kingdom of God, and put it into the old wineskin of, of uh, heaven. It doesn't fit. And we have to grow an understanding on that. The same thing with Sunday and Sabbath. We come to a knowledge that we are to keep the weekly Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath. That's the new wine. Do we put it into the old concept of Sunday because people have different ideas about what you can and can't do on Sunday. And I'm absolutely convinced that we have a lot of new people who may still be, well, it's like I, uh, let me just give an example. I, I was talking to somebody after one of these TWSPs, and they were really excited, and they wanted to come to church and everything like that, and they said, well, we got we got to leave because we, their stores are going to close at 6. Well, sunset wasn't until after 6. They may not get it. And so for any new people, they need to uh, evaluate, they need to think, they need to come to understand that they haven't just changed days, made one day earlier, the Sabbath, but the whole concept of what the Sabbath means is different from what they did on Sunday. Another one is we try to fit some people, try to fit the new truth into an old concept, maybe that they weren't as familiar with before, but Messianic Judaism. I'm amazed how many people are involved. That has to be a growing movement, either that or it's just bigger in Canada than it is down here, but I'm running into more and more people that are involved in Messianic Judaism. And so they're trying to take the new knowledge of the Sabbath and the Holy Days and fit them into the very thing that Jesus was talking about in the parable of the new wine and the old wineskins. So they want to get their prayer shawls, and they want to get the felt hats, and they want to take on, you know, a a Passover meal with a whole meal, and include with that the the New Testament symbols, but the the old symbols there where they have a burnt egg. If you've not been to a Passover Seder, Seder, they have a burnt egg. I had the opportunity one time to go to one because I keep it on the 15th and 16th, so I was able to go on the 16th. And, and this burnt egg is sitting there, and I asked the rabbi afterward, I said, what is uh, what is this burnt egg? I don't read that in the Scriptures. Could you explain to me? Ah, oh, the egg is a symbol of life. And I thought, yes, you're keeping Easter, <laughs> you know? I couldn't believe it. And so I checked into it further and that is it wasn't just that particular congregation that is a part of the Passover Seder. But we have people that want to take the Sabbath and the Holy Days and put them into an old context maybe it wasn't the one that they grew up with but they want to take it into an old wineskin that should have been discarded a long time ago. Now Another example is of uh, new wine and old wineskins is the purpose for our calling. Why has God called us? I've asked this question a number of times, last year or so. If God is not calling everyone, why is he calling anyone? It's something that you might want to think about. The quick answer to it is because he's called us to do a work. Now, what's implicit in that is that the old concept is that God is simply calling us to be saved. That's the old concept, the old wineskins that people have grown up with. Well, God is trying to save the world. And God is trying to save me. And so they come into God's church thinking that this is the purpose of my calling just so that I can be saved. But if God is just trying to save people right now, why isn't he calling the other fellow? No, God is only calling a certain number of people because he's called us to do a work. Now, there's a little bit more to it because God is preparing a team for the future and he has certain numbers that he's working with. But you see, that's that's the new wine. And when you take the, you know, the the coming into the church, and you put it in the concept of just personal salvation only. Not that God is not offering that to us. But the reason he's called us today is not for personal salvation, because he's going to call a lot of people later on for that. But he's called us now to do a work. And if we're not doing that work, in whatever capacity that we have to do it, then are we fulfilling our calling? In Revelation, the 17th chapter, we have a a problem, a very serious problem that everybody has to come with grips with at one point or or another. We have a a wonderful booklet. I I think that two of the the finest booklets that Mr. Meredith has written are uh, Restoring Apostolic Christianity and Satan's Counterfeit Christianity. The Restoring Apostolic Christianity, I understand, is the name's going to be changed to Restoring Original Christianity. But I, I think that that's extremely important because it uh, explains things that that I know I didn't understand when I first came into the church, when I came into the truth. Uh, people would ask, well, what makes you different? What are you different? How do you differ from others? Well, I said, well, we're, we're kind of Jews who believe in Christ. Uh, That that was the only way I knew how to explain it. Now, restoring apostolic Christianity or original Christianity is a far better way of explaining it. Because it takes away that that Judaism part of it. That uh, people have ideas what Judaism is and they think that Judaism is the religion of the Bible. But getting back to Revelation, the 17th chapter, verse 1, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Verse 4, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Now, this is such an an absolutely incredible description of uh, a a particular religious organization. Uh, The color of their cardinals, there's a bird called a cardinal, has a funny little thing on top of its head, and they've got a little funny hat that they wear, and and uh, it's red. They're red, and the cardinal bird is red, and so they have the College of Cardinals. When the last uh, leader of that institution was uh, put in office, I had, I was watching a little bit of on television, and I saw all of the cardinals, I think, as we were looking toward the stage, I think they were on the left, if my memory is correct. Sometimes my memory isn't real good. You know, I, I went to England after 50 years of being gone, and I was... Mr. King was showing us some places, taking us some places I'd been. And and I found out in 50 years that England had tilted. And the reason for that is that because I wanted to go to this little creek or stream. It was more of a a ditch (laughs) where we used to go fishing when I was there. And and it was flowing the wrong direction. If you understand what I mean, it it, it turned directions. Well, it was my memory. So I I just say that as I, I recall these people sitting in red were sitting on the left hand side and then it must have been the bishops I'm not sure but they were in purple on the right hand side it was a different group of people and they were all in purple I'd not seen that before now they have uh, this golden cup and it's a symbol of their you know their their mass uh, over the head you see that on coins and elsewhere it's interesting because it's hard to miss what this is describing. And so oftentimes I will ask somebody who's having a struggle with uh, new wine and old wineskins, I will say, Well, who is this describing? Now, some years ago, people would have been very bold to say who it's describing, but today we're non judgmental. We don't judge anything. You know, we, we oh, I can't judge that. And so people are afraid to say what that is. But you help them along, and they, well, they, okay, they can go along with that. You explain, look, there's a difference between being condemnatory because there are people who grew up that way and are sincere. And we're not trying to condemn them because, frankly, we were a part of that at one time. We just didn't know any better. We're no better than they are. But the fact is we can judge right and wrong. And we can take a description and say, okay, that's what it's describing. Now, once you get past that, then you read verse 5, it says on the forehead, on her forehead a name written, mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And so the new question is, she is a mother church, she is seen as a mother church, so who are the harlot daughters? And I'm amazed that people can't, sorry, connect the dots. Who are the harlot daughters? If she is the mother, who is it that came out of her? Who is it that looks to her as the mother? Now, the reason I bring this up is because probably most of us in this room, unless we grew up in the, in the church, were once a part of either the harlot or one of the harlot daughters. I I was a part of the better part. You see, I was just one of the harlot daughters. And and we knew that we were better than the great harlot. Now, we didn't know that she was a harlot. We didn't know that we were harlot daughters, but I knew the Protestants were better than the Catholics. (laughs) Now, they knew that they were better than we were. But let's be honest. Do any of us want to be a part of The great whore, or a little harlot that came out of her, a daughter harlot. (laughs) When I say that we need to repent of our past religion, there's something here to it. We need to understand that what we came out of was a system that had no relationship with the true God. Now, it had the Bible in some cases, depending on who you're, you're talking about, and the minister, and a lot of things. And we were sincere. People are sincere out there. Uh, we're just trying to judge the, the facts of the matter, not condemn people who are ignorant because God hasn't opened up their minds yet. Any more than we were ignorant before God opened up our minds. But the point is, now that our minds have been open. Are we going to take this new knowledge and put it into a context of old wineskins? Are we going to see things that way? The uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary is the only one I know of. I, I've checked several of them anyway, and I haven't checked every commentary on it. In describing this, says this, It cannot be pagan Rome but papal Rome. Because, see, some commentaries say that what's being described here is Roman Empire or secular Rome. But Jameson Foster Brown says it cannot be pagan Rome, but papal Rome. Not much difference, but anyway. It says, If a particular seat of error be meant... But I incline to think that the judgment and the spiritual fornication, though finding their culmination in Rome are not restricted to it, but comprise the whole apostate church, Roman, Greek, and even Protestant, so far as it has been seduced from its first love, referring to chapter 2, verse 4, its first love to Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, and given its affections to worldly pomps and idols. So, this commentary says, it is exactly what it is, not just papal Rome, but Protestants, uh, Greek, uh, you know, uh, so forth. But it's, it does put the qualifier so far as been seduced from its first love to Christ. So that's, that's the, the out. But in reality, if these are harlot daughters, they're not the church of God. Now, we're all very familiar with the many warnings that God gives us about false ministers. Let's notice 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, as one. I'm not going to go through all of the scriptures about false religion, false ministers, but let's notice here in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. He says, "Oh that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy.' For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Here's one of those examples where a woman represents a church. I I didn't explain everything in Revelation 17, but there are a number of references to a woman as being a church, and here's a chaste virgin, so that's God's uh, church, but uh, the harlot, of course, is a false church. He says, But I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, is it possible that our minds, brethren, can be deceived in various ways? Uh, hopefully we haven't been deceived in a in a big way, but sometimes the worst ways are those little ways that we don't recognize. You know, let me give you an example. Totally unrelated to this, but it's an example that, that would explain it. If you, if you turn on the television some night, or, or you go to a movie, and there's a lot of sex and violence, you recognize that that is of the God of this world. It's, it's not God's way. And, and hopefully you, you turn the channel or you walk out. But, if it is a Disney program where the kids are smarter than the parents and the girls are smarter than the boys and so everything's turned upside down you might miss that you might not recognize it because it's a little bit more subtle my, uh, my sister-in-law has a hard time with me about movies although I think she's kind of become a believer a little bit we went to uh, movies many years ago, cool, cool Runnings, I think it was, about this Jamaican bobsled team. That's kind of a cute movie in a lot of ways. We came out and she said, well, what was wrong with that one? <laughs> and I said, well, this one young man had total disrespect for his father. He told his father off. And she said, yeah, but he was a jerk. And I said, yeah, but Hollywood wrote him as being a jerk. That's the way they portrayed him. You see, it's the subtle thing sometimes that we miss. And we may recognize certain spiritual truths that are big, but sometimes the subtle ones are the ones that get us. It says here in verse four, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, does the world preach another Jesus? Yes, it does. It preaches a weak, effeminate, long-haired fellow with a, a lamb under one arm and a shepherd's crook in the other, who has a long robe all the way down to the ground that would kill himself if he tried to do construction work. I've read articles saying that uh, the, uh, the, the robes that they had weren't necessarily down to their feet, that, that uh, the, the pictures that we have of, of that first century are in many cases wrong, that they were a shorter robe, more like what you'd see a, a Roman-type robe they have, and they have a belt around. But you'd imagine trying to do construction work with uh, a, a robe that goes down to your feet, covers your feet. Be hard to do that. The picture that we have of Jesus is a weak picture. And Bruce Barton's book, uh, The Man Nobody Knows, in a review of it, it says in this book Barton pic- paints a picture of a strong Jesus who worked with his hands, slept outdoors, and traveled on foot. This is very different from what he saw as the Sunday School Jesus, a physically weak, moralistic man, the Lamb of God. Now he is the Lamb of God, but even that concept, what does that concept, the Lamb of God, mean? Do we take the the, the term the Lamb of God and put it into the old wineskins? The Lamb of God meant that he was a sacrificial lamb. He was slaughtered, as it says there in First Corinthians the fifth chapter verse seven. He was slaughtered for us. So sacrifice, but that's what the word means, the original. It means slaughtered do we understand it in that context or do we see the crucified christ as he has been portrayed up until mel gibson who probably went to the other extreme um, but at any rate do we see the jesus as he is when you read in mark the 11th chapter mark 11 in verse 15 i am a, I'm checking out. I I keep looking over here at Mr. Tyler every once in a while because I know that he's on serious jet lag. And if he's still awake, I I realize that he's still with me here. But uh, if he does, not often. He hasn't so far as I haven't been able to catch him. Realize that he has an excuse. And he knows what he's doing. So, at any rate, uh, where am I going? Mark, the uh, 11th chapter, verse 15. He says, So they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who brought who bought and sold in the temple. He began to drive them out and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Now, if you think about that, they outnumbered him. But here was a young man in his prime who was so strong and had a very forceful personality and when he flipped over those tables he didn't, you know, lift it up and, and barely get it over he probably threw him around a little bit one place it says he fashioned a whip to drive out the, the animals and do we know that that whip didn't come across the, you know the legs of somebody that he was driving out along with the animals we don't know But he made the point, and they didn't oppose him. They weren't going to have anything to do with him. That is not the Jesus that is portrayed in Sunday school today. And if that's wrong, what about all the other things that are wrong about how he thinks? You see, we're we're in this... Non-judgmental errors I mentioned earlier where people think that, well, I, I can't even make a decision as what's right or what's wrong. It's, it's, it's amazing how, how sheep-like we are. How people just lead us around like we've got a ring in our nose. How, you know, the culture and society does and, and we just parrot back things that, that we hear. Instead of thinking for ourselves and, and reading what the scriptures say and making decisions for ourselves. You know, contrast Peter with the successor of Peter, furthermore, the vicar of Christ. I think of how Mr. Meredith speaks. I think of how Mr. Armstrong spoke before him. And then I think about this guy that stands up there and talks about dominoes and dominoes, and my father plays dominoes better than yours does, you know. Uh, This is not... This was not Peter. This is not the way a servant of of Christ would be. In Mark, the first chapter, it talks about, in verse 30, Peter's wife's mother. He was married. But there are people who cannot accept that Christ had brothers and sisters, as it tells us in the Scriptures. Restoring Apostolic Christianity. If you haven't read it lately, I encourage you to do so, in Satan's Counterfeit Christianity. Let's continue reading there in Second Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Another Jesus it speaks of there. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received... Now, when you look at the spirit that's in the world, churches of the world, you, you've got the happy, clappy ones. You know, you got the, they're waving their arms, and they're clapping, and they're jumping up and down, having a good time. And then you've got all this ritual that is done there. There are different spirits, different approaches, different attitudes toward worship. Now, I don't know that we have perfection in the church of God when it comes to that. You know, I I, I just don't know what it's going to be like when Christ returns, how people are going to react. And we're mostly in a, an Anglo-Saxon country where uh, that's driven most of what we do. And so maybe we're a little bit stiff and staid. But nevertheless, when you look at the, the overly emotional, entertaining type of spirit or the cold ritual, neither one is God's way. But when people walk into services with us, they they try to put what we're doing into the context of what they had. As an example, uh, baptism. In recent years, I've run across people that are very particular about where they're baptized. They don't want to be baptized in a, a feed trough, you know, a stock tank. And I usually try to explain, well, that's much more like a coffin than a river is. So it's not a matter where you... But some people want to be baptized in running water. Some do not want to be baptized in a swimming pool. Well, what's the problem? Okay, now they realize they need to be baptized, but they want to take the new wine, and they want to put it into the old wineskin of what they think baptism is. And they miss the whole significance and point of it. There are people actually travel all the way to Israel to be not in the church, I don't think, but maybe, I don't know, uh, that they want to be baptized in the Jordan River. Is there something magical about that particular river? A different spirit, a different approach toward things, or a different gospel, a different gospel. We've talked a lot about that. We have a booklet on the subject, what is the true gospel, and it explains that. And again, it's very different from what most people think of it. And that's something that we must come to understand. In 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, once again, in verse 13, it says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers, Satan's ministers, also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. When I first came into the church, it took me quite a bit of time. I don't want to say quite a bit of time, months, maybe a year or two, to come to the place where I, I had to recognize that a very famous Televangelist that was out there had a lot of campaigns back in those days was not a servant of God he was deceiving people now I don't mean that he was insincere I think he probably was sincere and everything I've read about him is that he is also a very moral individual and that's great and that's wonderful God has not fully opened his mind yet and what he's doing, he thinks he's doing right, and he stands before God on that. But I can judge that what he is teaching is not according to the Scriptures. And I found it hard to kind of come to the realization that, you know, he's a deceitful worker. You see, he looks good. If Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, does, is he going to send out his ministers to look bad? But how many people are able to accept the fact that the religion they grew up in, the ministers that they had, were working for the wrong side. I talked to a a uh, United Church of Canada minister one day. I had a TWSP and... Later, he invited me over for dinner. I didn't know he was a minister when he invited me, but I took him up, actually not for dinner, but just on a visit. And I got there, and this was out in Newfoundland. And if you go to Newfoundland, and if you get out of Newfoundland without eating with somebody, you've probably offended them. In fact, you're probably going to have to stay overnight. Otherwise, you may offend them, as I found out, even somebody brand new, especially if it's snowing out. But this particular individual uh, visited, and we had nice talk, and then his wife had prepared a a dinner, so we had dinner. And, And right in the middle of dinner, he asked me, he said, what does the church teach? What does your church teach about homosexuality? So I went into the Scriptures, or just referred to them. And then he began to explain to me what he thought on the subject, and it had no relationship whatsoever to do with the Bible. And I realized what I'd always heard—that that a lot of these ministers—they don't look to the Bible as their guide. It's more a social gospel. It's more—they uh, they they may talk about the Bible, they may even read a verse out of the Bible, but they don't believe the Bible. And I was nice about it because, after all, his wife was feeding me, and you know, it's not the time to to get into an argument with somebody. I just give him what I, what we teach and then I listen to what he taught and, or what he believes and that was the end of that. You know, we have to understand where these things come from. And we can't take our new understanding and put it into the old context of what we were taught by false religion, false ministers. Now, as we draw closer to the end of this age, we in God's church must understand that we we have to be very careful about putting new wine into a certain type of old wineskins. One of the great blessings of living in Canada, especially in the Toronto area, is that we have a wide variety of ethnic groups there. I I count it up every once in a while, and if I take just the Mississauga congregation, we've got a lady from Peru, we've got a man from Germany, uh, uh, from the Czech Republic, uh, the Philippines, Japan, you know, just different places around. I, I count about 20 different places that people come from. And they're very warm. As Mr. Ames was talking about, one of the islands where they give you a lot of hugs and that sort of thing. They do the same thing there in, in the Mississauga because that's... Their background, in many cases, a lot of them come from the islands. So it's a warm place. But in Matthew, the 24th chapter, we're given a warning in verse 7. Matthew 24 and verse 7. It says, For nation will rise against nation. And the original word is ethnos, will rise against ethnos. And kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilence and so forth. We're beginning to see right now society unraveling, civilization unraveling. We have these Occupy, this Occupy movement that is spreading around the world. We had the, the uh, Arab Spring through Twitter and various other forms of social media. Uh, we find that the tail is beginning to wag the head. And people are able to get people together and they all come out, and they don't even know why they're there. It reminds me of the Ephesus where it says that the, the greater part, the old King James says, the greater part knew not why forth they were there. They don't know what they're doing there. They've all got different ideas, and they're all, you know, talking about But some people just love a good sit-in or a riot. You know, if they hear about one, they, you have these professional rioters. They, they, the same people show up at all of them. They must be sponsored by parents or whatever it is. But you know, that's going to get worse as we get closer to the end. And you know what? It's going to be easy for every one of us in this room to hate. When things unravel, it's easy for us to go back to the old wineskin from which we came out. And it's easy to get angry. For example, if we have someone from India and someone from Pakistan in our congregation, and one of them lobs a nuke at the other and kills some of their relatives, that's going to be hard, I think, for those people. And as we get closer to the end, if we do not see that we have a higher citizenship, a greater calling... We're going to find ourselves in trouble. Notice Colossians 3. Colossians 3. We try to take this new religion sometimes and put it into our old ethnic, uh, cultural, national background. Colossians, the third chapter, verse 9. It says, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Now, brethren, have we put off the old man? Have we taken out the old wineskins and thrown them away and brought in new ones? Or are we trying to fit our new knowledge into the old old way? No, he says, the old man. We've put him off with the deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So a new image that we are to be created says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, neither Brit, nor Scot, nor French, nor German, nor American, nor Canadian. Let's put it in the context of today. Circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Or do we go back to the old Wine skins. Therefore, as elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, even if that other person, that other one, is not of your country. It says, if anyone has a complaint against another, as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, one body, and be thankful. You know, we have to throw off our political preferences. Some have gotten so caught up in politics that they hate. I don't know if they're willing to admit it, but you can sometimes hear it coming out of their mouths. You know, God tells us that we are to respect our leaders and I've, I've been caught up, I've gotten caught up in that in the past where we, we don't have the respect for the office that we should have. National differences, feelings of superiority, feelings of, I don't want anything to do with that person. It may not be a big problem today, but as civilization unravels, those are going to be things that are not going to be so easy. Mr. Rod King said something one time that that really struck me. He said, I don't like to refer to it as the British work, but God's work in Britain. I like that. You know, it's God's work in America. It's God's work in the Philippines. It's God's work in Canada. It's not the Canadian work. It's God's work in Canada. And, you know, language does things. This is something that the politically correct people understand, that words have meaning. And at first it may seem like a trivial thing, but after a while it changes how we think about things. And we need to understand that we're not Jews, we're not Greeks, we're not English or Scots or French or Canadians or Americans. Yes, we are in one sense. But our first and primary citizenship is reserved in heaven. We are Abraham's seed. As it says there in Galatians, the third chapter, in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. So social status doesn't matter. Ethnicity doesn't matter. There is neither male nor female. In, you know, this context of this. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you, are Ab- if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We must try to... must not try to fit our new citizenship into our past culture or ethnicity or political... Uh, ideology too many try to put new wine into old wineskins they try to fit new truth and old habits and old ways of thinking and Jesus made it clear that this is not going to work so let us examine ourselves and stop putting God's truth into our old ways of thinking let's stop putting new wine into old wineskins